being a good person isn't something that you are, boys. It's something that you do. It's something you have to do again and again every single day. Your moral character cannot skate by on what you did yesterday. Every hour of every day is a new referendum on your character. It has to be. There are no cheat days for being good. So get out there and embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning. It's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense. And eventually, you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're going to be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 167 of Embrace the Void, where we are men, manly men, Men in Tights. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking masculinity, and miraculously, it's not all deflecting jokes, so let's use our words. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Tom Curry, co-host of the Cog Dis podcast and one of the many disreputable regulars on Citation Needed Pod. Tom, would you like to say hi to the void? I guess uh, I will scream into it. I've been staring into it long enough. <laughs> you got a little bit to let go of after anything recently? <laughs> any, uh, any feelings? Did, did you happen to see the story where you can now um, actually pipe your screams into an Icelandic abyss? Have you have you seen that story? <laughs> no. How have my people not sent me this? My my voidling should be all over that. This is this is legitimately amazing. They they put a speaker facing into an Icelandic gorge or something and if you want to just scream your rage and disappointment and frustration into an actual abyss, you can record it and send it and bellow your misfortunes into the abyss. It's it's the most 2020 oh appropriate use of technology possible i love it it's like the it's like the far more ethical version of the, like the remote hunting setups where you can like hunt online or something i don't know if you've ever seen those no wait um, what oh yeah oh, that's totally what? a real thing that you can do you can go for real hunting yeah you can go for real hunting what is wrong yeah <laughs> yeah sorry to bring you too fast into the horrible world of ethics and technology wait, but wait, yes that is absolutely a thing that is you it like do. attached to a drone or do you control a, a gun hunter? it's like a it's like a gun that that like is remote operated essentially and then they and then it see you watch on a camera and it sees some animal happen by and you shoot it yep and then it dies and then it rots, and then someone takes care of it. I think. Oh, okay. Like, just like the, I just picture you know, this people managing. I mean, look. So, like, the ethical version of this is: this is supposed to be a way for individuals with like disabilities, for example, to still be able to engage in hunting when they can't well, physically I, get out. There I can't get up and walk, but I still got to kill something. I don't want to miss I out mean, on all the killing. <laughs> It's look. It's my job to try to understand why some people might want to do something in a reason that seems ethical. <laughs> um, okay, so on oh, on to sorry. our topic. Yeah. No, no, that was that's good. No, this is. I'm really excited to have you on because this is a chat that's about three years in the making. I actually looked it up. You and I had a chat back in 2017 around issues of toxic masculinity and male experiences and gender in society. I believe there was something going on right around then that some. had something to do with some issue. <laughs> and then, like, I blacked out for several years, and I'm not quite sure what happened. Um, and in the meantime, I noticed you've written a series of blogs, a letter, a, a series of letters, really, to your sons about sort of your issue, your views around masculinity and trying to raise good men as you talk about in these uh, and I really wanted to dive into them because this is something that is very important to me as an ethicist uh, and someone who is interested in moral education and the the ways in which moral education have always been it seems like gendered and whether that should continue is I think a really important question so that's what I want to dive into with it 
first of all, you want to give folks just a little bit of background who might not know, even if they know you, might not know where you're coming from on masculinity and on these kinds of issues and how your experiences as like a father and a provider might have impacted those experiences, those viewpoints? Yeah, absolutely. So I find myself in the position of being a man raising boys. So I have um, two biological children. I have four children total. I have two stepchildren and two biological children. Three out of four of them are boys. I was raised by my dad, so with one brother. So my experience growing up um, was exclusively a male-gendered experience in terms of how I was raised. And then Mm -hmm. in 2016, I got divorced, and I found myself a dad raising boys. And I found myself again in this position where I thought, geez, I've got boys. I am a man. They are going to grow up to be men. And that's important. And everything that we do is informed in some way by our gendered experience. We don't have, the more I thought about it, the more I, I, I got to thinking that gender is such a fundamentally... It's just such a fundamental part of our experience. There, there is very little we do that is not informed from the, from the moment, really, of conception. What's one of the first questions people ask? Are you going to find out the gender? Mm-hmm. We have reveal mm-hmm. parties. When you find out somebody mm-hmm. just had a kid, one of the first things, if not the first thing, one of the first two questions people ask, is it a boy or a girl? Mm-hmm. These things matter, and our language tells us how much they matter. And they belie the, there. There is so much about who we are that's informed by that piece of us. And so mm-hmm. when I when I looked around and I realized, well, here I am. I'm I am a man raised by by a man. I am now a man raising boys, and I mm-hmm. want my boys to be good men. But that's not going to mm-hmm. happen accidentally. And, um, you know, I write a lot in my blogs about the idea of being an intentional person, trying to teach my boys how to be intentional people. And um, it's something that is deeply important to me. It's something I think about all the time. The idea, as, as I conceive of it, about being an intentional man is you, you decide what parts of you are in your control. And those mm-hmm. parts of us that we do have some control over, which is a small fraction of us. But the parts of us that we do have some control over, I think we have a moral obligation to exert control, a moral control mm-hmm. of those things. And I want to teach the boys how to do that because I don't want them to grow up to be accidental people. I don't want them to just show up as adults one day and say, well, this is just who I happen to be. This is how I happened to form. That's not mm-hmm. parenting. That's not education. So I, I write these blogs as a way to think um, through mm-hmm. these issues myself and then you know to pass those things on that and i'm you know i am i am more worried about the mortal coil issue right you know what if i get hit by a bus next week you know Hmm. um it's just the truth my kids are six and 13 so i have an obligation to leave something to them in the event that i'm not the one who gets to share this with them yeah and i I think that definitely makes sense and so I'm going to set aside the control questions because I, I, I'm sympathetic <laughs> to what you were saying about the intentionality. And like I can I can code switch enough of it to understand that what you're talking about is being intentional, which is something that I value as well, even if it's a matter of luck, whether you happen to be the sort of person who gets to be intentional or unintentional. Um, but I do think so. So this really, I think the way you put it there at the beginning about everything you know is coded in these gendered kinds of ways in our experiences for for all of our entire lives i think is one true and important element that creates this tension that i want to wrestle with here with you about yeah. sort of how do we cope with that fact if on at the other hand we also as i will we'll talk about right view these gender norms as being heavily constructed oftentimes harmful to various individuals how do we help the people who are living through those gender norms while not replicating them in harmful ways for those people and for future people as well. So like that, I think is that is the hard problem of gender and ethics for me, even acknowledging that in our current living world, um, you know, we are, we are gendered and sexed bodies in these kinds of ways. And that heavily informs our experiences and probably a lot of our relationships with other people. 
Yeah, I can't think of any relationship that isn't informed in some way by gender. I mean, mm-hmm. our, our work relationships, our romantic relationships, our view mm-hmm. of who we are, no matter where we fall on the spectrum, whether you feel like you match a set of social expectations or whether you don't feel like you match a set of social expectations, still that conversation is always taking place. That conver- mm-hmm. Our conversation um, as, as two men talking, it is different than if we were not two men talking. It just is. And it's different in ways that um, you can evaluate and you can point at and we can identify and, and that because that exists, I think it's important. And I think mm-hmm. it's important to look at and to be aware of. Um, so mm-hmm. I think about this all the time with the boys. I have no idea who they'll grow up to be mm-hmm. in terms of their um, conformity or nonconformity to gender roles or their gender expression. I have no idea. Um, and I have no, no preference either. I really don't. Um, but I know that they will not grow up um, to live lives that are uninformed by their gendered experience, however they fit into the world um, so it's important that they consider it and that they understand those mm-hmm. relationships and that they see them mm-hmm. and that they see clearly their um, their role within them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's great. That's a great prologue. And so uh, I want to talk about the letters. And I, I think the best way to really – the first one for me encapsulates a lot of what we're laying out here. And I thought it might be nice since it's kind of short if for you to just read the first letter on air for folks to get a flavor of – Sure. Uh, how you're approaching this. All right. So uh, my my biological children, um, I started this in 17 before I had stepchildren. So this is written letter number one, dear Finn and Eamon. Finn is my older son. Eamon is my youngest son. Dear Finn and Eamon, I'm writing this blog to you so that I have a place where you can always find my thoughts and some ideas and subjects that I think are important. I think a lot about raising you boys. Very specifically, I think about raising boys. And I think a lot about what this responsibility entails to raise boys into men. And I think a lot about what it means to be a man and specifically what it means to be a good man because I think that's important. And I can't raise boys into men if I don't know what being a man means. And I can't try to mold you into good men without knowing what makes a good man good. So I think on this question a lot, both for your sake and for mine, to be a good man, to try to know what this means, to put into place the habits of self and thought that will help you boys actualize this, to model these habits in words and deeds These are the motivations that occupy much of my time and thoughts and energy. And I thought it might be useful to try to organize some of these thoughts into one place for you to find and reflect on as you might need them. And the last piece is just a little schmaltzy for the. (laughs) You don't want to do the schmaltz? No. no. Edit that. It's good schmaltz. People should check out the schmaltz. Just, Do you want me to read I wanna, it? I want to highly, no, I want to highly endorse these letters and say that I think they're very earnest and thoughtful. And while I'm going to do the horrible philosopher thing here and like challenge you on yeah, the nuances apart, and the details, of course. Right. But of course, I just want to first lay out that I really, we don't have all the time in the world to go through all of the beautiful things in these letters that I think are really valuable and that I think folks should check out for themselves. But yes, so... I, I was curious to see if she would do the schmaltz because I didn't know how much you were willing to emote on air. No, that's that's um, a little yes. that's a little mu- well, you know, and how much of that that's is fine. right. Let's let's pause there and reflect mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. how much of that unwillingness to emote to my children on air that's gender mm-hmm. too, right? Yeah, you should do the reading. That's a good point. Go on. Yeah, that's 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 my reluctance to do that. Mm-hmm. is not uninformed by the fact that I'm a, I'm, I'm a you know, guy, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'll mm-hmm. read it. Fuck it. Yeah. The, the last part of it is, I love, you boys, I love you boys more than I love anything in this world. I hope this blog always finds your hearts full of joy, your minds alive with wonder, and your lives full of people worthy of your love and affection. But yeah, That's isn't great. that funny to, to start off a conversation uh, about mm-hmm. gender and find myself reluctant? Yeah. To, I think to, to that's very thing. stereotypically know, that's reluctant. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. And I think emotions are a big part of the conversation we want to have here and what emotions people are allowed to have and where they're allowed to have them and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, there's, other, well, there's one other caveat. There's one other table setting piece that I want to do here before we get into some nuts and bolts because you make a really good point in your article about your advice regarding women Mm -hmm. to your boys, which is that women are not a monolith and that they are not this sort of 
hegemonic swarm that one can apply universal principles to in some kind of way, right? And I don't know this that is I a use big problem. Swarm, but I'm going no, to. No, I'm, I'm adding that no, in. No, I know. Yeah, I'm that's goofing. uh. <laughs> Dear thirteen-year-old Finn, do not take women yeah. as a hegemonic swarm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I'm going to get in trouble for that letter. I expect to get in trouble when if people read that letter. Mm-hmm. I almost hid that one from public mm-hmm. view. You know, but I I didn't on purpose too because I I think I couched it enough. Uh-huh. I hope that uh-huh. I couched it enough. But yeah, I thought very much about well, hiding that particular letter. So let's chat about that one. Okay. Well, there's certainly some things in there that I will prod you tiny bits about, but sure. I also think it is a very valuable letter. And the reason that I start with this caveat is because I think that anyone doing ethics or politics or any of the things related to the issues we're talking about are stuck in the same problem problematic unresolvable loop that i keep going around where you want to make generalizable enough claims that they are useful to the people in these groups who are experiencing you know oftentimes similar kinds of problems because of the fact that they are gendered in a certain kind of way for example right Mm -hmm. but you don't want to make those claims so monolithic that you say all women have experienced xyz right so to avoid that you go down and start looking at the particulars of people's individual lives but then the challenge there is you can get too sucked into looking at the individualism side and you forget to pay attention to the systems and so like we're always trapped i feel like trying to generalize just the right amount but not too much and people are always going to misread us to some extent and and in some cases as being like over or under generalizing about these groups yeah and it is a that is like i said i was is a concern that i had when i wrote it you know first and foremost these are these are literal letters to my children and i know my Mm -hmm. kids and i know who i am and i know how you know what I what I suspect about who they will be at this point in their lives, having aged somewhat. So these are letters mm-hmm. to specific people. These are not. Mm-hmm. This is not general advice, although I make it available um, as a public blog. So these are these are mm-hmm. letters to my children from me as as a person. Um, and as a result, I, I wrote them sincerely and earnestly. But I also know, like, well, I'm a man writing about women. And how mm-hmm. to interact with women. Mm-hmm. And that's touchy. That's just a touchy careful. subject. <laughs> yeah, it is. And we should be careful. Um, no. We really I, should. I remember back in 2017 when we first started chatting about this, it was during like Aziz Ansari and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And there was an SNL bit that I, I think we, I sent to you about like people at a dinner table, like trying to have a conversation about any of it. And as soon as they would go slightly in one direction, everybody's like, careful. No, 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 no. Oh, <laughs> careful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I understand the feeling. Um, and I, 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 you know, so I, I want all of that properly caveated. If anybody wants to cancel us after this point, we can, you know, go ahead. But like that is, I think, important to lay out and then still to talk about general experiences that these different groups yeah. are having. Um, so so here's here's my first main question for you. Like yeah. beyond just the like all of our experiences are gendered all of the time, what is the value in making ethics or making our talk about good and bad gendered, right? When you talk about making your, your sons good, you say making them good men rather than good people, yeah. right? Is there is there something important that you feel like is added in making it specifically gendered in that way that is beneficial for them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I have thought about this because now I have a stepdaughter. And so some of the letters that I write are going to be valuable to her and others will be much less valuable to her. Her experience and my boy's experience is going to be different. My boys are safer than my stepdaughter. That's just a truth. Mm-hmm. Fa- that's just a true fact. Um, men still have significantly more power um, in in most social work, um, walking down the street sorts of ways. Men, this is a this is an unfair world that we live in. It's a patriarchal world. We're in charge. Men are in charge of many things. We shouldn't be, but it's still a truth. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. power dynamics are unequal and that's unlikely to change Mm -hmm. next generation or the next one after that. So the boys have a different set of responsibilities. We have a responsibility to the things that we have power and control and, um, undue sway or influence for, right? We have an ethical responsibility to anything that you have, 
any kind of um, power interaction or power dynamic with, I think. So the boys mm-hmm. need to understand that. They, that they need to understand first and foremost that that creates that, that because they will receive a certain number of advantages that they need to know what those are. They need to understand mm-hmm. the responsibility that those things confer and they need to act mm-hmm. kindly and appropriately mm-hmm. based on that. Um, and they still need to act in ways that are satisfying to them, that give them a good mm-hmm. life, that make them happy individually. Because, again, these are letters to individuals, um, to my personal children. You know, it's not just general shit. So, yeah, it's important to me that they understand that um, their experience of responsibility in the world is wildly mm-hmm. different. It's wildly different. And they it's inescapably different. Yeah, this is this is great because this is one of the examples that came to mind when I was reading your letters about why there could be an advantage, right? So I genuinely go back and forth on like genderless ethics versus gender, you know, in, informed ethics in this kind of way. Um, and it seems to be one advantage on the like why to talk about gender side would be you like your, the letter you wrote about on privilege, where you talk about how ma- men have privilege and that privilege instills in men a kind of responsibility which is interesting language i think usually when people are talking about men they are more often than not men's rights folks who are talking like who will push back on the idea that men experience privilege by pointing to examples of men experiencing worse outcomes in a variety of ways but it seems like you're and you very much i appreciate use the kind of no free will moral luck language with your privilege discussions that i think is very valuable um can you maybe unpack a little bit more like what you see as the privileges that men have as you said that they have power they're more secure and what the like responsibilities are in a concrete kind of way as a result of those privileges i can unpack some of them um off the top of my head right so um i mean i think you got to start you got to start with with biology and again we're we are talking generalities right so Mm -hmm. you know there there will be many exceptions to many of the things that i say and i'm sure i'll say most of them wrong but by and large, men are physically more powerful than women and not by a small amount. Um, and this is something that I think men don't fully understand, appreciate or respect. You know, my body is just going to be a safer body to live in. It's just always mm-hmm. going to be a safer body to live in in most circumstances than most women. That's true forever for the rest of my life. My, mm-hmm. my experience when I, um, I've never once thought about whether or not I can put headphones in and walk down a parking lot or take a jog or um, ride my bike, right? I, I get to do that. I never have to think once, twice, or otherwise about that. I can go on a blind date with somebody and not have to tell my friend, hey, I'm going to meet so-and-so, here's their phone number, we're going to this restaurant, we'll be back by this time. Um, I don't ever have to think about that. That's that's not just You don't a even phys- have to let your wife know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean okay. that's that's cool. That, I I support that. You know, I'm, I'm in yeah, favor. everybody's got their own thing. Um <laughs> <laughs> You caught me on that one. But no, I I think not only am I physically safer, but that's also mental energy I never have to spend. It's mental energy I get to spend doing other shit. Forever. Every mm-hmm, moment mm-hmm. of every day because my body is a safer body, generally speaking, to live in, something I never have mm-hmm. to worry about. When I walk into a building, if I walk into a room or a building, and this happened to me the other day at CVS. I'll give you a concrete example. I went to CVS late at night, um, I don't know, two, three, four weeks ago. And I was just looking for whatever. I was going on a trip. I was looking for something. It was late. Um, there were two women in the CVS that were working there. The one woman was mm-hmm. one aisle over. I don't know where the, the other young lady was. And I heard them talking. And I'm paraphrasing to some degree. The one woman said something like, I'm going to go in back. And she, the, the other lady, and she said, there's, there's two cars out front. There's a woman, you know, in aisle six or whatever. And the other lady said, wait, there's another person in here, and it's a guy, and he's in the next aisle. And she said, oh, okay, I'll hang out. In other words, mm-hmm. because I was a male in that space at 1130 at night, they were mm-hmm. not willing to be alone, right? Mm-hmm. I never have to think mm-hmm. about that. I worked retail. 
I worked retail for years and years and years. I knew where my customers mm-hmm. were, but I never had to worry that, man, I'm the only guy in this room or I'm the mm-hmm. only. Yeah, I, it's something I never have to think about at all. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. So not only am I physically safer, but that's mental energy that I conserve. Constantly I get to conserve that energy. And that mm-hmm. matters. That's a big freaking deal. That makes a huge difference because not only am I physically safer, but I'm mentally safer. That's anxiety I don't experience ever. And yeah, and I think it's important. It's valuable to point out that there's this biological element to it that I do think should be acknowledged. And then on top of it, there's the social element of living in a society where you know that like the majority of assault cases do not get properly prosecuted or there's a bunch of stigma against survivors or like all of these other kinds of social problems that make it the case. So so there's, you know, you can push back a little bit and say we could have a society that better like prosecuted these kinds of assaults and then those women in those circumstances would not be in sort of less safe bodies in that sense because they the environment is made safer in that kind of way but in, yeah. in the absence of that then like there is the physicality issue it still seems like but let me push on you a little there because that's mm-hmm. kind of the is there any society where women feel entirely safe in a room full of men does that exist Possibly, anywhere? I don't know. I, don't, I think it's possible. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I would argue that um, I've never heard of one. Doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I've never heard of one. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, I think, you know, and I, I suspect we might go down this road. There is a, um, to me, and I'm, this is a strong word, there is a uselessness mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. idea of what's nature and what's nurture, Right. Um, mm-hmm. I don't find mm-hmm. that to be a valuable concept or starting place or argument because what is matters more than why it was created. If, if you have and here, here this is actually a great example. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can point to any society historically. And I don't think you can mm-hmm. point to any society currently existing where women are safe from the predation of men. Or where women are really in a place where they can put their headphones in and go jogging in the way that you and I could point to places that are safer. I'm not saying there's a place where there are people who are necessarily 100% safe, but then again, you and I are not 100% safe. What we're talking about is right. The degree that they are more unsafe than you and I are. I I don't even Um, think that there's big meaningful distinctions that are that, that, that that make the day to day, experience Mm -hmm. fundamentally much different and so it's like well why does this exist i don't know but it does will it change it has never changed and it is not different anywhere it's not different if you're Mm -hmm. in japan it's not different if you're in western europe it's not different if you're in america so there's something there that we're wrestling with that is got a biological base or it would not replicate okay from society to society to society and we just have to know it Mm -hmm. so i think we want to be careful on a couple of things there because i think we want to not conflate biological with unchangeable or immutable as compared to societal being readily changeable and immutable i think there are both especially in the modern technological area era sort of mutable to varying degrees um but you know your point about nature nurture distinction being sort of useless it's it's funny because oftentimes i'm the one who's being critical of the nature nurture distinction and so having you come in and be even more (laughs) critical about it forces me to then obviously be like well but what about the ways in which it's important so like you know i'm totally sympathetic to like it being less important than a lot of people i think want to make it while at the same time saying it does fundamentally matter if the factors going into some outcome are predominantly environmental versus predominantly biological because we want to be able to tailor our solutions to what is really, and you know, causality being complicated as it is, right? We do want to, I think, try to tease apart to some extent, you know, is it really the case that, um, you know, women are less intelligent than men, or is it just the case that like society continues to undervalue female intelligence in a variety of ways, for example, right? So, 
you know, like this is just this big problem, I think, of how you try to have these generalizing conversations without, in effect, reproducing yeah. harmful gender norms in some kind of way. Um, so let's talk about equality a little bit, because I think it ties your, your thoughts on equality, I think, maybe tie in with this some as well. You say that the most of the talk about gender equality is nonsense, um, but not because it's unimportant, right, but because it is often not talking about the things in the in what you think are the right ways or in the ways that are truly meaningful so i'm curious what you think is missing from our discussions about gender equality yeah i i think we've not decided what it means yet mm -hmm. i don't I, I and that's the first step i i'm not sure what gender equality means and i don't say that facetiously okay. i genuinely don't know what it is supposed to mean so does it mean equal access to education does it mean the big fundamental systemic things right um if if it does mm -hmm. i'm on board right if it means equal access to education equal pay um fine that's that's terrific the uh, big giant you know systemic political for sure uh, of course you know first wave kind of stuff i think that's the easy mm -hmm. uh, hit it out of the park no-brainer kind of stuff right um mm -hmm. when we dig deeper than kind of first wave systemic equality, it becomes much, much less clear what gender equality really means. And, and when you ask people, um, the answers get real fuzzy, real, real fast. Um, okay. And I think, I think we need to know if what these things mean. I think we need to know, um, are, what do you, I mean, what does it mean? So, what does gender equality so, 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 mean? Okay, so speak for your, just for yourself then, yeah. right? If you were our philosopher king tomorrow, right, or philosopher non-gendered uh, leadership position, what would you, uh, well, how would you want gender equality to be um, enacted throughout the land? I, I and that's and that's exactly the thing. I I don't I I would not. I think I would okay. fix the big systemic issues. Because um, they're not fixed, and let's be very clear, they're not fixed. Um, we still have massive systemic inequality in terms of inequality of, of opportunity for women, um, inequality of uh, basic um, access to health care for women that men have access to. I mean, we have not fixed that stuff. Past that, no. I, 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 you, we got to let some things kind of play out on the ground. I don't think they happen from the top. I'm not sure... I don't want to be in a place where I pretend to speak for women about what women want or mm -hmm. what men want. I'm not sure that there is an answer to those questions. I do see that there is fundamental differences between um, how we treat one another, what we want from each other. Um, I don't know that those things mm -hmm. are good, bad, equal, or unequal. Um, we got to fix the first wave systemic issues, which I think a lot of us have pretended we've fixed when we haven't. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And then if I'm philosopher king, I, I, you don't, that's not that's not top down. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know what equality means for men and women. I genuinely don't. I don't know that it's achievable in the ways that that we socially pretend that it's achievable so so one concern i might have is can we really can we really fully pull apart the questions of what you're calling sort of first wave or or like equality of opportunity kinds of issues with um sort of more complicated gendered questions like the things you're talking about here like how do we figure out for example if the disparities in the number of women in STEM fields is the result of, you know, differences in preference versus the socioeconomic factors. And if we were to, for example, find that, you know, we got rid of radical wealth inequality or something like that and women had access to education, but we were still seeing, you know, of a fairly small percentage of women in various STEM fields, how would we then, do you feel like, how do we assess to make sure well, that's just okay at this point because that's what they've prefer that's the preference they are expressing. Yeah. I, I think um, that's just okay. I mean, is it okay with women? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, is it okay with men? I don't know. 
I there again. I, I don't. I don't want to, and I'm not. I promise that I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm not assigning roles based on biology, but I do think that we need mm-hmm. to acknowledge that um, women get pregnant and men don't, and that's a big deal. And we mm-hmm. have no access to childcare, for example. So talk about big systemic issues. So we don't have mm-hmm. universal childcare in this country. Universal childcare is not available in most countries in the world. Most, mm-hmm. right? A handful of countries mm-hmm. have access to universal childcare. If we don't have universal childcare, and women bear the brunt of the raising of children, trying to get to a place where we are, and and people are going to have kids. Eighty six percent of women at some point in their life have children. That's that's the number I looked at the other day. So most women mm-hmm. have children. Most uh, all only women get pregnant. Most women will have children. Most women bear the bulk of the burden of child rearing. That right now, especially to talk about America first, but you know that primarily means that people cannot work or work mm-hmm. and have a a, a a different career trajectory. All of those things mm-hmm. mean that we are we have not fixed the systemic issues at all. We're not even close. And until we fix that, there is no such thing as equality. That, that's a I, I don't know why we would have. I don't know why we would even have a pretense toward that idea when we at this point have mm-hmm. made it very clear with our policies, with our voting with where we put our money that we have decided and it's wrong but but that's the these are the decisions that have been made that we are not trying to create equality between men and women and until we all decide we're fixing that Mm -hmm. it's not and and we could fix that but there's very little political will to fix that Mm -hmm. so let me ask you about, you know, you want to talk, you want to focus on systemic things, which I'm I'm all on board with, and I well, would, I think that's just I would it's imagine step one, right? Sure, but I, I want to talk, I want to sort of broaden out because I think a lot of folks when they hear what you're saying, they might be thinking of it in a kind of more Marxist, you know, we have to fix the wealth and inequality and those like material state kind of issues like childcare, and I do think those things are valuable, but I also think there are other sort of systemic cultural factors in play that I think undercut the ability to address those issues. And you actually, I think, brought some of them up in an interesting way in your in your letter about women. So you had a list of, of things about women. And again, mm-hmm. full caveats, right? Yeah. Not all women, et cetera. Right? Right. I want to read these because I think there is, I have a little concern here that is not just the not all women question. It's sure. a different kind yeah. of question which is so this is number i think it was three um women are allowed a greater range of public emotional expression and receive more social emotional reassurance than you are likely to be allowed or will receive again talking to your sons mm-hmm. don't confuse this with neediness or over emotion over emotionality right. i want to set aside the second part there it's the first part that i'm interested in which sure. is the this idea that that men and women are allowed to express different emotions. I was wondering if we could unpack that some, because it seems to me that, you know, it's not that women get more emotional freedom overall. It's that men and women are allowed different kinds of emotional freedom Mm -hmm. in, I think, very controlled sort of patriarchal kinds of ways. Yeah. Would you say you agree? I I totally agree. I think, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and and this is, this is a little shift away from, yeah. So um, I think, there is still a American. I don't know about any place else, but in America, I think that there is still a social value to a certain amount of male stoicism. Mm-hmm. Male stoicism is still socially valued. It's still preferred. Generally, mm-hmm. there are pockets, you know, particularly upper middle class educated. You know, there are pockets where that's less the case, but those mm-hmm. are niche pockets. Um, when mm-hmm. we look at how men are represented culturally um, in and this is going back to my my literature background, but I think um, analyzing pop culture, analyzing um, movies, books, who our heroes are, um, that hasn't changed a whole lot. That just hasn't. Um, you know, there there are there are men are made. It is a joke. You can play it for humor. Right. And when we can play something for humor, mm-hmm. it says it's less valuable. So. 
Um, the uh, man cold, so to speak, like that's funny, right? Like that's a joke. Mm-hmm. You play it for humor. Um, the mm-hmm. idea of, you know, a, a guy weeping is less. There are times when that's allowed. It's less, you know, it's mm-hmm. not, you know. It has not fundamentally changed much in our heroes. Um, in our general culture. It's still socially preferred. A certain amount of male stoicism is still socially preferred. Could we could we nuance it a little bit and say sure. it seems to me that men are allowed to express emotions that are coded for as uh, strong or dominant. So we're allowed to express anger and pride and things like that. We're not allowed to express vulnerable emotions. And and that, again, generally speaking, yeah, I think right, that, that, so traditionally, that's a great distinction. yeah, that's, that's whereas a great women women are allowed to express vulnerable emotions more openly, but are are uh, prevented from expressing you know passionate emotions like anger, which undercuts their ability to engage in social change in certain situations. Yeah. So, and I guess that's that, that's why I wrote it in the letter: is a women are allowed a wider range, a greater range of. Uh, I think mm-hmm. I think the for many men, again, in terms of social preference, um, the range of of expressible, socially acceptable, expressible emotions is relatively small. It's it's mm-hmm. not a wide range of of options available. Um, like you said, you you can be angry, right? Uh, nobody. Um, that that doesn't make you mm-hmm. less sort of quote unquote manly. It is not it is not necessarily socially valuable, but it is not it does not undermine or undercut your um, masculinity quotient if the, if this such mm-hmm. a thing exists, mm-hmm. right? Um, so yeah, you, you've got we've got a relatively narrow range, and it's a bad range. Let's be blunt too. Like it's not a great mm-hmm. range. It's not mm-hmm. a, a really healthy range of emotional expression that's and that's not helping anyone that's not good that's that is well, and a, i think we could argue that yeah i mean both sides it seems like here are being denied you know the ability to fully express emotions the next um point that you had in that same article actually was you then say women tend to de-escalate situations don't confuse de-escalation with the resolution of a problem and to to me right one of the main reasons i would guess that women tend to de-escalate situations besides what we were already discussing about safety issues is the issue that um you know society tends to uh, look less favorable when they escalate through things like anger for example so you know take um biden calling you know it's telling donald trump to shut up right like that played well for him in a way that i think it's fair to probably say it would not have played the same way for hillary clinton four years earlier and right so there's a gendered benefit to being allowed to wield those kind of emotions in that kind of way yeah well part of that is because you know the the guys in charge who are the guys Mm -hmm. you know we Mm -hmm. we're going to select for the things that we are doing and we're going to say the things mm-hmm. that we are doing are the more valuable things when we do them mm-hmm. and that's right. that's just that's just part of the unequal power balance you know and again something that i want the boys to be aware of um i i happen mm-hmm. to work it's interesting because i in my real life um i work in real estate and particularly in the area of real estate that i work in it's about 75 percent women to men um, mm-hmm. but as you move up the the food chain that starts to readjust, Shit. right? Mm-hmm. So as mm-hmm. you move up the food chain, a certain level of management that still maintains its, its, its status quotient, it's about 75%. Then you move up, it drops to about 50%. And then you move up into the executive level, and it drops to about 20 25%. It, it, it shifts pretty dramatically. Mm. Um, and the way that men and women sitting in a boardroom, sitting in a conference room, interact with one another, even at a fairly high level, it's different. It's really mm-hmm. different. It's very easy if you want to and you're not aware of it. It's why I write these letters to the boys. It's very easy if you're aware of it or you're not aware of it to talk over and silence women, even powerful women, as a man mm-hmm. in a room. And it's mm-hmm. not okay. Um, but it is, to your point, it is one of the privileges of being able to express um, you know, anger, assertiveness, aggression, those are all perfectly acceptable, even in a workplace environment when you're male. And they are absolutely mm-hmm. unacceptable in that same environment if you're female. 
But if we're going to deal with the problem of toxic masculinity, which we have to, one of the things that we have to do is open up a wider range of vulnerable emotional expressions to be socially acceptable for men to um, express. If we don't do mm -hmm. that, we don't fix the toxic masculinity problem at all. We, I don't think it's we interesting ever to hear you use that term. I wasn't sure if you, I was curious what kind of language you, you preferred when talking about healthy versus unhealthy uh, kinds of masculinity. Some folks are not keen on the concept of toxic masculinity. I yeah, think, I think it's it a fine a shorthand concept. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I think it's a perfectly fine shorthand. I'm not, again, so, I, I'm not sure we've all agreed what it means. Uh-huh. Um, so what do you, um, what kind of tools do you use then to, um, for lack of a better word, feminize your boys, right? How are you, how are you helping them to counterbalance the like culture that is telling them to lock those emotions inside? Do you have particular pieces of like media or, you know, ways of getting them to think critically about any media by pointing out nah, certain things young. that you feel like is helpful? Yeah, mm -hmm. no, it's, it's not tough because they're, they're not there yet. Um, mm -hmm. So that kind of overt pointing out con you know that that's not that's just not developmentally i think where my boys personally specifically are um but i'll tell you what i do do um is that mm -hmm. i'm incredibly effusive with my boys in person mm -hmm. um i am unafraid to show them well and that's not true because i i hmm. i would like to pretend that i was that i was i am i i would like to be more able to show them when I am not a hundred percent. I would, I, but I don't very often because again, I, I recognize some of this is some shit I have to write down and say, mm -hmm. Hey, you know, here's some things you should think about. Um, and I will acknowledge that there are things I'm uncomfortable personally doing. Again, I was, a, I'm a, I'm a man raised by men. My dad mm -hmm. is a wonderful dad, but my dad is not somebody who showed you his vulnerable side. And it is yeah, it's, not it's funny it's that not you, something that I'm comfortable doing either. I don't show much that of, up. Yeah, I don't I don't show that. That's not something I show my boys, to be perfectly honest. I, I've never cried mm -hmm. in front of my boys and I can't imagine what would have to hmm. happen for me to do that. I so I grew up in a fairly hippie household, and so there was like to some extent the you know like the the the, the praise for emotions, the enjoying of the arts, these kinds of things. At the same time, when my parents got divorced when I was like six or so, like my father dealt with it very primarily in private. Was my experience of it right? He would go and do meditations and cry and such, and so and and like they were doing it for me in the sense that like they were trying not to have all of those emotions spill out all over my life and such and there was like there's value in that in terms of trying to not you know make things terrible for the children in the midst of that process but it did also reinforce to me this idea of like that's how you deal with things is you you know you take care of it and you you deal with your shit and then you know you cry in private or something like that um and like even coming from a very pro-emotional place um, it took a while for me to, to break out of that. And it actually took um, my wife getting really sick, I think, for me to come back to a place of feeling things a lot when I would watch, you know, certain movies or listen to music or something like that. Um, so, you know, there is this tension I think we have as adults or as role models or as things like that where finding just the right balance of expressing those kinds of emotions without harming or weighting down your children with those kinds of emotions it's really really very very tricky and so it's not just that you know i want to let you off the hook a little bit uh, yeah, it's right. not just that you are a, a a guy who's been habituated to be a guy you're also probably a reasonable human being who wants to not you know spill your shit all over your kids all yeah, the time and that, that is part so like, of it i don't yeah. i don't believe in burdening my young children with they're not my confidants they're my children so mm -hmm. they're, you know, that, and that is a line that I draw that's very strict. So they are not my confidants. They are not there to comfort me. So they're still children. Maybe when they're adults, that relationship changes. But as children, I don't do that. So, but I, I mm -hmm. also, you know, I'll be blunt. Like I will, I will own the parts of it that are not perfect for me. Like I, if I would, I would lock the door if I was upset. I, it is not something that will accidentally happen either. Um, hmm. I saw my dad cry one time when we put our dog to sleep. Uh-huh. That's it. In, you know, 42 years of my life, raised exclusively by my dad, 
went through all kinds of stuff together as a family like you do. I saw that man's eyes grow teary exactly one time, and I, I was shocked by it. I was absolutely hmm. shocked by it. So, it, I mean, I, I will admit that that's, that is part of what informs my experience, and that's very personal. I don't want to generalize it out, but I don't think it's entirely outside the norm either. I think, again, that there is some level mm -hmm. of male stoicism which is just culturally expected or valued. Um, is it something you'd like to see shift for you personally as a role model for your kids? No, I'm good where I'm at personally. I think it needs to shift. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not looking to make that change personally. I think it needs to shift socially. I'm 42. I'm not I unhappy. See. I feel well adjusted. So I have, mm -hmm. I have options to be vulnerable with my wife that, you know, I take advantage of when necessary and that yield the right amount of, of, uh, emotional release for me to be healthy, but socially speaking. Yeah. Absolutely, that should change. But, I mean, what about in a in a like family performative kind? I mean, like not not performative in a in a bad way, but performative yeah. in like, you know, you're healthy, you're fine. Your your children, you know, your sons are being raised in a horrible patriarchy and need to be able to like see how you can feel those things and still be the the you know the man that they want to look up to or something like that. So you know, is there? watching movies that that do it to you and making you cry in front of your kids is there not something sort of valuable to that kind of yeah, i mean like my father and i went to like uh, a men's retreat at one point and did like exercises that were about letting out various kinds of emotional expressions and such would you ever consider something like that with your boys no i would not no um, no, no okay. i would not Interesting. no i would not um and maybe that <laughs> and and maybe i should reflect on that though maybe that maybe mm -hmm. that is something i should reflect on but my my gut is no, there's no there's there's no way I would do that. But my I will say I know my boys very, very well. I pay a lot of attention to their emotional state. I validate their emotions when they're feeling something. Um, I'm effusive. I'm extremely physically affectionate. I hug them all the time when they're upset. I, I tell them that it's OK to cry. I validate their emotionals, th th their emotional responses unconditionally. Um, and mm -hmm. I seek out and petition them for their emotional state often. So That's I good. don't know that I necessarily have to model it um, mm -hmm. in ways that make me uncomfortable, frankly, in order for mm -hmm. me to, which, which again, that might be bullshit and I'll, I'll, I'll reflect on it. It might be bullshit, but nonetheless, it's, it's how I feel. So, but mm -hmm. I petition their petition them frequently for their emotional state and I validate it, you know, and I talk to them about it and, you know, I'm like I said, mm -hmm. I'm very physically affectionate. And when they're sad, they have no problem at this point. You know, again, 13 is the older age, but they have no problem expressing that fear, anger, sadness. They, they, they seem to express a wider range than I felt comfortable with at that age. Mm -hmm. That's so. that's great. And I think that's a really valuable point that like there are ways to alter norms that don't necessarily mean that you have to alter your personal behavior as a, as an explicit kind of role model or something like that. I think, um, a asking those kinds of questions does validate those parts of individuals in those kinds of ways. So I do think that's important. Are there any other, like, I don't know, things that have come along for you that you feel like have been particularly helpful in sort of making progress on on these various issues that you're wrestling with around um, conveying to your sons that it's okay to have, you know, a wide range of emotions. It's okay to do all of these different kinds of things. And at the same time, um, you know, if they if they end up like a traditional man or something like that, that's also fine. Yeah, it, it part of it is just... Um accepting where they're at when they're there you mm -hmm. know the kids the, the uh, 13 is is an age 13 is the is is an age where people begin to you know enter that age of reason they begin to separate themselves from their parents it's right around there i mean it varies depending on the person right but it's it's right around there so people begin to sort of draw those lines those distinctions um mm -hmm. so i think mm -hmm. part of that answer is we'll see because we're, I'm not, you know, developmentally, the, the kids just aren't there yet, which, again, is part of why I, I've written the letters that I've written is to reflect on these things and give them an opportunity to read and reread and reflect. Um, that because, not being there yet is such a problem, right? Like 
if you can't start talking to them about this in an abstract way until like 15 or something, right? They're so deep down being habituated by society in a bunch of different ways already. It's like such a losing battle. It feels like in a lot of ways too, yeah, right? I, if you're not, if you're not able to get in there earlier. The, the, I think the reality is as parents, we exert far, far less control over exert control is the wrong word. We have less influence. <laughs> that is more accurate. Mm -hmm. We have a lot less influence um, than our children's peers. And mm -hmm. that's, that's just, I think mm -hmm. that's just very true. The, and the society they grow up in, their peers, what their peers value, what their peers reward, what their peers reject, that is going to be who they are. That is going to be not who they are, but that is going to shape a lot of their thoughts um, on these mm -hmm. subjects, much more than my letters will, much more than my modeling will, much more um, than almost anything. If, uh -huh. if, the, if the boys go out into the world... Let's go back to the to the idea of stoicism, just because it's something we talked about. If the boys go out mm -hmm. into the world and they see um, sexual selection taking place, where the the girls in their class prefer more emotionally available men, mm -hmm. that will encourage them to be more emotionally available. Right? Those are the guys mm -hmm. that are getting dates. That mm -hmm. will we we're. we're I mean, we, we select yeah. for things I, that you're work. not wrong. Right. Right. I know As someone with a life in theater. You're not wrong. Yeah. Um, if if, however, they go out into the world um, and they see, you know, the guys who are more manly men, more stoic, more, you know, hardened, that those guys get more day then then that's going to they're going to say hey, that works. That works. That gets me a job. Guess the that gets is... me a girl. That gets me, and they will select their behaviors to match the things that reward them. We all do it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the problem and is, there's a honest, bunch of both of those in the world, right? Yeah. And it's just luck which one they end up with. But well, it's it, it's class. Mm. A lot of this, a lot mm -hmm. of this has to do with class and money. You know, I think that it, it is it is a in in a, in a, in a in an educated upper middle class middle class world which is a minority of of America right most of America's broke we pretend we're a mm -hmm. rich country but we're not the median income for a family of four is something like $60,000 divided by 4 it's $15,000 a year that's broke most of America's fucking broke most of mm -hmm. America doesn't have a degree a college degree it's it's not most of America is not you and I it's just mm -hmm. true in in my world, I happen to be a middle class, white, educated American. In in my world, my gendered experience is very different because class informs that, mm -hmm. and the and the world that my boys grow up in will be informed by the interaction between class and gender, and what's expected of them, and the selection processes that they experience as a result of their gender, and what they want from their gendered experience, will also you know, coincide with their class experience. But for most of America, most of America's broke, man. Most of America is not middle class. Most of America is not college educated. So most of the people will experience a different life than, than my boys. And I recognize that that is a massive privilege, a massive, mm -hmm. massive privilege. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Um, I realize we're starting to run a little short on time and we got to get you to the enlightening round as well, but I wanted to sure. give you a chance to wrap up. Are there any, so other than the basic goal of wanting to see your, your sons turn into gentlemen, are there any other like really key ideas that have stuck with you as you've been writing all these letters that you'd hope that they might pick up on alongside that just basic, be a good person, be a good man stuff. Yeah. I, I want them to reflect on what good means. Um, mm -hmm. I want them to, you know, the, the, uh, a, a, and I, I know you'll push on this, and I expect it, and that's great. But I, I think I want the boys to be intentional about who they would like to be, and I want them to form their actions, their habits, their thoughts, um, their interactions with other people to match who they would intend to be. Um, they will be various degrees of successful in that endeavor. But what I don't want and what I have very little interest in for them morally is being accidentally something, showing up, looking up when you're 32 and saying, well, this is just who I am. You know, I'm just I'm just this kind of guy because I've had enough of this kind of guy. 
we all have had enough of this kind of guy. Um, there are things we can't change. And we talked about there's there's a tremendous amount of shit and I that that we don't get to choose. But the pieces of us that we do get to choose, um, we need to be real fucking careful about those things because it's less, which makes it more mm -hmm. important. And I want the boys to spend time reflecting on those relationships. Um, I, I, I write about I write about the kinds of relation. One of the things I write about is the relationship between autonomy and responsibility. And there is a relationship that they need to understand between autonomy and responsibility. The more autonomy you have, <clears throat> the more autonomy you want, I should say, the more responsibility you're going to need to acquire, right? If you want less responsibility, you're going to have to give up some amount of autonomy. That's a relationship that I find holds true at work, in romantic relationships, in personal relationships. That, that balance is personal. It has to be understood about where you fall on it, how you feel about responsibility, how you value autonomy. They need to make some decisions there. And they need to understand that there's so much of that. There is so much of that, that if we are aware of those interactions and we build our lives to match those things, rather than just looking up one day and saying, well, that's just the kind of guy I am. I think that's a bullshit way to live your life. I think that's very well put. And so I will let you off the hook this time and not push back <laughs> on it. I think that's no, I, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to all the things you're saying there. And I think that is very valuable for anyone coming from any experience, gendered or otherwise. Um, so I'm going to take you off that hook and instead put you on the other hook. All right. Which is the enlightening round. All right. Enlightenment comes from within. So I'm not sure if you're familiar. If you're not, uh, for folks who are joining us for the first time, I am going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are those things real okay. or not real? All right. Those are the only things you can say. You can't hedge. You don't get to define what the word real means. You just get to say real or not real. Do you understand? I understand. I got it. Are you, I'm ready. Are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. So let me just prime you here. Is anything real? Yes. Real. Okay, let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Yes, real. Okay. Are colors real? Yes, real. Is phenomenal consciousness real? Yes, real. Free will? No, not real. Selves or persons? Yes, real. Genders? Yes, real. Races? Yes, real. Species? Yes, real. Morality? Yes, real. Yeah. Rights? No, not real. Mm. Knowledge? Yes, real. Mm -hmm. God or gods? No, not real. <laughs> <laughs> just testing you. Just wanted that's, to check. That's just silly. <laughs> see, if I can, see if I get you to I screw we were up on this one. a serious conversation here, Aaron. <laughs> suddenly out yourself that'd be the best right best enlightening right ever um, oh no <laughs> society yeah real okay money yeah real okay numbers yeah real fictional characters oh i hate the way you phrased this okay <laughs> i'm not allowed to hate it <laughs> oh yes real but I want to talk oh. about it, but I can't. Okay. Oh, you're my favorite. You're doing my favorite things. That's we'll talk about it after. Um, holes is in a hole in the ground. Yeah, real. Okay, chairs. Yes, real. <laughs> Sandwiches. Yes, real. Science. Yes, real. Natural laws. Yes, real. Beauty. Yeah, real. Mm, love? Yes, real. Causality? Yes, real. And time? No, not real. Okay, you survived. How do you feel? Woo! I don't, if, I don't know if you asked me that same set of questions again, if I'd answer them exactly the same way, to be honest with you. A few, I don't. few people will, I think. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. It, you, you fall into <laughs> one of my favorite baskets, though, which is the category of people who tell me that God or gods is not real, but fictional characters are, despite God at, at minimum being a fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, it, but fiction, like, yeah, fictional characters are real. I know. They are really fictional characters. <laughs> oh, buddy. But God in the understood colloquial sense is not real as real is understood. Yeah, I can't. I but know. I can't. Like, I want to f- wrestle with you so much. <laughs> about how, how dare you, Aaron? How dare you ask me this oh. Oh, it's so satisfying. Uh, thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate this yeah. whole conversation and especially that enlightening round. That was super <laughs> amusing. Um, do you want to let you. folks know where they can find your hilarities elsewhere in the meantime? Absolutely. You can check us out over at uh, dissonancepod.com and citationpod.com. Those are the two podcasts. Uh, Cognitive Dissonance I do with my friend Cecil. We've been doing that for 550 episodes, so we think that one will stick. <laughs> Uh, citation needed uh, that's with uh, Cecil as well as the uh, puzzle and the thunderstorm guys that's about 150 episodes or so in so I think that one's got some staying power as well yeah. if you want to check out the blog you're welcome to it's at dangerousletters.wordpress.com yeah and we'll of course put that in the show notes and for folks who are interested we had a great chat over on Cogdis about Monster Island a little while ago so you should definitely go check that out that was a lot of fun it was super fun. All right. Well, thanks, Tom. This has been great. I will yeah, catch so you much, man. around. Absolutely. All right. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got quite a few new patrons recently. So I'd like to thank Rambo Billy, Matthew Brown, former internet spaceship politician, Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, Intellectual Dark Wave, Curdy, Rinthrin, uh, and Grant Godso. And as always, thanks to our $20 tier Duke patrons, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Chad T, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And our newest $20 patron, Patrick. Thank you very much. And most of all, all of the void thanks to our top-tier patrons, Dave Maslich, the creepy eyes that stare at me from the void, and our newest top patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on podcast apps. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod, and if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, and I cannot stress this enough, you are the void, and the void is you. How dare you, Aaron?